have a spiritual awakening. But I think that becomes possible only as individuals surrender their lives afresh and anew to Christ and live the Christian life wherever you are. First, we do everything we can to follow in the steps of Jesus. We're to live a life in which we love one another, we help one another, we live according to what Jesus lived. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us live that new lifestyle, which is one of love, gentleness, and patience, and all of these things that are the fruit of the Spirit. We must remember that we communicate the gospel by our lives as well as our lips. We live before a watching world, a world that is waiting to see if what we say is lived out in our lives. We must be living in the power of the Spirit. We must be men and women who are pure vessels for God's message. Secondly, you read His Word every day, the Bible. I know it's very difficult, but you need to start somewhere. And I'd suggest you start with the Gospel of Luke and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, start with the very first verse. In the beginning, God. And study those passages. Make the Bible your source and your authority. Quote it frequently. Let its message be your message. Study it. Meditate upon it. Memorize it. Trust its promises. The Word of God itself has power. And the third thing, go to your knees and pray until you and God have become intimate friends. I cannot describe to you the joy and the peace that He gives to you as a result of that daily routine that you have in prayer. Is there a lack of power in your life? Perhaps you have neglected the preparation of your life. We've neglected prayer. We've neglected God's Word and the feeding of our own souls. Whatever it is, confess it, forsake it, repent of it, and then walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and gain victory over it. And may God today lift our vision and may the power of the gospel break upon our world with fresh force as we are obedient to Christ's call to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Hallelujah. Let's take a moment and give thanks to God for the people who have preached the word of God, including Billy Graham. Take a moment and think of the person who preached the gospel to you. and give thanks for them.
And God, today we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you as we seek to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, when Scott and I realized that the scripture we were going to be sharing with you today was about zeal, um, I have to say that Billy Graham is one of the first people that comes to mind when I think about zeal. And that there was this passion in his heart to share the gospel all over the world. And there was a passion for him to sit with people that he agreed with and people he didn't agree with to share the gospel with them. And that there was this, even in his 100th year, I, I, I don't know if any of you watched the funeral, but I listened to Anne, his daughter, talk about how she would come to visit him and he would make her preach the gospel for an hour at every meeting. That she would sit down, she would share a scripture with him, and he'd say, no, I want you to comment on it. And so she would preach to her dad for an hour. And then she said, as the years went on, way later, it turned into just a 10-minute sermon. And so she said that, you know, all he wanted was 10 minutes, and that was enough for him. And, And I think about that, and I think, you know what, yeah, Billy did not need an hour anymore, right? And I want to say this morning that we have people that have preached the gospel to us. I remember when, um, you know, we were young and the people that shared, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, shared the gospel with us and how it changed our lives and changed the trajectory of our lives. And I think about um, even when we were at the One Billy Graham Crusade, Scott, where you, you and Sean were praying with the band, DC Talk. They asked you to come and lay hands on them and pray before the Billy Graham Crusade. And you were just footsteps away from Billy Graham, who at that time had really um, severe Parkinson's, right, Sean? They had that severe Parkinson's. And yet he, he moved behind the pulpit. And when he got behind the pulpit, he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, friends, there are bodies that fail, but the word of God endures forever. And the spirit of God on the inside of you can give you the ability to walk in the footsteps of God. Amen? Amen? Wherever you are right now, God can give you the power to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in ways that bring life and health to people. Scott and I were talking about zeal this week, and Scott and I love the zeal of God, and we believe that it consumes our life, but it shows up very differently. Because Scott has a different brand of zeal than I do. I don't know if you ever noticed that. He's a lot more calm, collected, cool, present, methodical. And I'm a lot more, ah. And so I don't know what your definition of zeal is, but there, you know, some people think zeal looks like this. Some people think zeal looks like the students from Parkland. They think it looks like that, standing and going before their their, uh, legislators. Others say that zeal shows up caring for the aged. Others want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. We have one friend who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for, uh, to end trafficking, to raise money to end trafficking. We have another friend who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro just because she wanted to. Because it was there. Because it was there. There are others that would describe zeal as sitting at the Woolworth lunch counter, that there is a way to practice zeal that sits and says, I will not move until things are right. There are others that say that being zealous is standing your sacred ground, standing for what is right, giving a firm position. There are others that say zeal is letting love last for an entire lifetime. 
and going to the grave with this gift of zealous love. And so we asked the question on Facebook, what's the definition of zealous faith? And we had as many answers as there are people that answered. And and we laughed because we said, you you can definitely see particular personality styles in each of these things. Because some people, the word zeal was enthusiasm. That's what it means. And others said perseverance, right? And so none of them are wrong or right. One person said work. And I happen to know she's, she's working on her workaholism all the days of her life. Yeah. So there is zeal that comes out of each of us in a very particular way. So we want to ask you, how does zeal show up in your life? Mm-hmm. How do you ze- see zeal for God showing up in your life? Not in Billy Graham's life, not in Scott or Claire, but how is zeal showing up in you? How is the desire to walk in the footsteps of Jesus showing up in your life these days? In John 2, it says it this way. I actually would like you to stand for the reading of God's word here in John 2. And listen to how zeal showed up in the life of Jesus. You can read it out loud with us or you can just listen and let the words wash over you. Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem, and he found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks were also there in full strength, and Jesus put together a whip of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple. You've never seen that at Crossroads. Stampeding and the sheep and the cattle upending the tables of the loan sharks and spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here and stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture. Can you say it with us? Zeal for your house consumes me. One more time. Zeal for your house consumes me. So zealous faith, what is it? What are you zealous about? What are the things in God's house you want to see changed? What has God given you vision to turn over? Is there a table you're supposed to turn over? Are there things you can help establish that are consistent with your prophetic vision? And if Jesus showed up physically in our church or your house, is there anything that might get turned over? Just wonder about that. If Jesus showed up physically here on this day or in our houses when we go home for lunch, is there anything that he would upend because of the zeal of God? So let's let that wondering create space for us to love God this morning because God never does anything that does not begin and end with love. God is not like us, where some things begin and end with anger or shame or guilt or whatever it is. Everything begins and ends in love with God. So why did Jesus turn over tables, and what might Jesus want to upend in my life today? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Yeah, so you guys can go ahead and be seated. Imagine what this was like. So Jesus walks into the temple. There's all kinds of... There's all kinds of selling. Essentially what would happen is folks would need to bring an offering. Um, So some people would be traveling an awful long way. They would bring uh, their lamb or their dove or whatever for a long way. And then 
essentially there was this group of people at the temple that would sell doves, sell sheep. We see that, sell cattle, sell different forms of offering. So they would take advantage of these common people that were just coming to worship God. Uh, They would charge them incredible rates. Uh, There was a process that the animal would have to go through by uh, that the, in order to be set, said that it was holy, it was a worthy sacrifice, and there was a lot of rejection of the animals that the common people would bring. Uh, so their animals weren't good for offering. So uh, there was that to get mad about. Then they would have to buy animals because there were people selling the animals, and it was, could be 20, 30 times what the animal was worth. They'd charge these unbelievable amounts of money. And then there would be this money changing that would go on because there was a temple, uh, temple finance that they had to kind of buy. It would be like going to a Chuck E. Cheese and buying your coins. You know, you can't just use a quarter. You've got to have their coins, and they would make money off of that. So it's into that environment that Jesus comes and starts to tip over t- tables and shows his zeal. So imagine how the disciples felt, for instance, or the common people. They were probably excited. They thought, about time that somebody strained us up. The disciples were probably thinking, about time Jesus is going to be the kind of uh, Messiah that we were hoping for. He's about to take control and rule in power, like he was going to overthrow all power structures and take over the world, really. That's what they were looking for. The common people were probably very excited because they were the ones being so taken advantage of. So into the midst of that, all of this is going on. There's all different types of zeal showing up, not just Jesus, uh, because he's not going to um, put up with this, this. but the one, the one thing that we can know for sure out of this zealous act of Christ, which is totally appropriate in his case, is that zeal shows up, but it doesn't always have the kind of direction that it needs to have. And that's the truth about their lives, the common folks, the disciples, the Pharisees, and it's the truth about us. We see, for instance, zeal showing up in the disciples' lives throughout the Gospels, right? There's times when zeal shows up in their lives, passion for Christ, and it just feels like they're hitting it out of the park. And then there's those other times where they're doing crazy stuff. Usually it's Peter saying something or doing something that his zealous action is even even, uh, communicated to him by Jesus that that's just not the way I want you to let your zeal leak out, right? The Pharisees, we see their zeal. They're zealous people. They're religiously zealous people. They're intense about their doctrine and their legalism. Uh, And we would say that their zeal is not appropriately directed toward a relationship with God. It's all about just putting bondage on people. So we want to talk to you about zeal, zeal that is uh, not properly motivated and zeal that really is focused properly. A.W. Tozer says this about zeal. He says, holy zeal is an all-consuming passion and deep hunger and thirst for Jesus. He goes on to say, all godly people are zealous, but not all zealous people are godly. So there's zealousness that shows up for good and for evil, and everybody has, who's seen that says, that's right. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Where zealousness shows up, and it was for good, 
or even people that, you know, they're trying to be good, but their zealousness is not godly. And so what we want to give you are some red flags when your zealousness might be in trouble. You got to think the big picture. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, put your sword back where it belongs. All who use swords are destroyed by swords. Don't you realize that I am able right now to call my father and 12 companies more if I want them of fighting angels? And they would be here, battle ready. But if I did that, how would the scriptures come true that say this is the way it has to be? So you remember where the scripture is. If you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew at some point in your life, this is where um, Peter wants to chop off one of the soldier's ears because he doesn't want Jesus going to the cross. He uses his zealousness to actually fight with a sword. And Jesus says, basically, if you fight with the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you use sword words, you're going to have this kind of confrontation. I, I love the, um, there's an old, I think it was a Rudyard Kipling uh, poem, but I can't find it anywhere. It's, look out how you use proud words. Well, I want to say, look out how you use sword words. That even in our zealousness to stand up for Jesus, there are times where our zealousness is not godly. It is not showing the love of God. It's not bookended by the love of God. And so we want to say, you know, Peter, he wanted to save Jesus' life, but he really just was using his zealousness to, you know, keep Jesus from what he was actually created for. There are a lot of times that we want to quick end to something, and we don't want to suffer through anything. Let's just get this over with, right? And so we'll watch sword words. You can see them on social media. You can find them at your kitchen table. There are sword words. And I would just ask us, at this moment, to say to God, what are the kinds of words that I use that are like sword words? Words that just try to get me through something fast. Don't want the pain of a long conversation. Don't want the pain of doing the hard work of saying the truth, right? Don't want the pain of actually having to wait for anything. I just want to get it done and get it done fast. So I'm asking myself these days, when am I zealous and I use sword words? Mm -hmm. The second form of zeal that we want to make sure isn't misguided is this form of zeal that shows up uh, in the way of being judgmental. Uh, In the scripture, uh, it tells us in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, James and John were probably surprised Because basically what happened is the Samaritans, when they found out Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem, they, being prejudicial in this situation, just said, you're not welcome here. So to James and John, it's like, look, if you're going to reject Christ, just send down fire, burn the whole village, you know. So uh, we need to be careful as as Christ followers, uh, especially to make sure that we're not being zealous in judgmentalism. Mm Mm-hmm. That we're not moving out and uh, begin to act like James and John, where we just want to... Do you ever... I know 
maybe the person next to you has felt this way before. Let's just burn the village, right? Let's just... Put them uh, all on an island and blow it up. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Billy Graham, talking about judgmentalism, he says this. He says that being judgmental and condemning are not gifts of the Holy Spirit. I love that quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, judge, judgmentalism basically at its core just uh, it speaks to spiritual immaturity. That's what Keith Green would say, and that's what... So when we are judgmental, we could know that uh, we're, we're functioning in our zeal, and it's just coming out. It's our spiritual immaturity that mm-hmm. comes out that way. Uh, there's really five uh, quick things. You can jot these down. Um, that why je- judgmentalism is incompatible with Christ following. The first one is love, uh, that the presence of judgment almost always guarantees an absence of love. The second one is help. If you've ever noticed people who judge, they almost never help, and people who help almost never judge. Here's another one to notice, humility, that judgment is never grounded in humility, It's always grounded in arrogance. Another characteristic is prayer. You ever notice how Jesus would encourage us at different times to pray for those who despitefully use us, for instance? Judging someone and praying for someone is pretty much mutually exclusive. When you and I begin to pray for people, it begins to break any kind of judgmental spirit Mm -hmm. in us. Mm -hmm. And the last one's evangelism. That people run from those who judge them, and they run to people that love them. Mm-hmm. And zealousness is like having loose limp lips that sink ships. And um, with one of the things that we love about Paul and Timothy's relationship is Paul was able to give this young pastor a way to see. And he said, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless. Can you all say useless? Useless. And leads to the ruin of the hearers. A lot of us, our lips, we have so many opportunities to have loose lips now, more than ever before. You can have loose lips in so many ways, in written form, in social media form, in spoken form. I mean, there are so many ways for us to sin with our lips now that were never available at other times in history. We can get in so much trouble with our lips. Even in World War II, they actually put a poster together to say, don't forget about this loose lips might sink ships. Look at Timothy again. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Oh my gosh. Or maybe we could use the word Twitter. Avoid worldly and empty Twitter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Isn't that the truth? Haven't we seen that? Haven't we seen talk spread like gangrene? Friends, loose lips sink ships. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all and able to teach and patient when wronged. How about that for a new way of living? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's how we're supposed to treat people that have opposing views. Gentleness. I want a dose of that. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape 
from the snare of the devil, having been held in captivity by him to do his will. And then my favorite that I think I said to my children five million times when they were growing up, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is such a word that is good for edification, according to the need for the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I got to tell you, friends, if you ever need to, needed to memorize a scripture, it's this one right now. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of our mouths except for that which is good for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. I don't care which version you memorize it in, but I'll tell you, it calms down the tongue from zealous words that you can't take back, that actually sink ships. Mm -hmm. Sink ships. You know, you've heard us say it a million times before, but, you know, the church is like Noah's Ark. It may be rocking, it may be stinking, but it's the only thing floating. (laughs) And one of the things that we need to do is we need to say to ourselves, how can we speak life over each other? How can we speak words that encourage and edify and give grace, right? Find a way to turn it around and give someone grace. Because with that, motives matter. Yeah, motives matter. Like some of us may even say, okay, so Jesus goes in the temple, he turns over the tables... So his zeal comes out in kind of an aggressive behavior. So why, for instance, is James and John's, uh, why is their zeal that shows up when they uh, get angry and want to burn a whole village, why is that different than the way Jesus Or Simon responds? when he wants to buy the Holy Spirit. Right, and it, it comes to motivations. In Acts chapter 8, there's this story where Philip is preaching the gospel and all kinds of revivals breaking out, right? All kinds of people are coming to Christ and there's this guy named Simon. He's a sorcerer, a magician, uh, and he uh, gives his life to Christ. James and John show up on the scene and uh, he sees, uh, the scripture tells us, when Simon saw the apostles merely laying hands and conferring the spirit, he pulled out his money, excited, and said, sell me your secret. (laughs) Show me how you did that, and how much do you want? Name your price. In other words, what happens is Simon gives his life to Christ. He sees people being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's like, this is a great, this would be a great new tool for my gig, for my sorcery, and my, my my, my being a magician. So his zeal is based in a uh, improper motivation, right? And for us, it's always critical for us to pay attention to our motivations. Uh, we live, for instance, in a culture that is so consumer-driven. And one of the biggest wrestling matches in the church right now for leaders is how do we lead in the church in a consumer-driven, uh, or I would just say, we are our main motive as a culture, one of our main motives is consumerism, How do we lead as leaders in the church when Jesus says that we're to take up our cross and deny ourselves on one hand, but we're in a consumer culture? How do I even get people to come to church without somehow leaning into their consumerism, playing into their motivation? Andy Stanley in the book Deep and Wide puts it this way. He says, we are unapologetically attractional. In our search for common ground with unchurched people, we've discovered that, like us, they're consumers. So we leverage the consumer instinct. So in other words, he's really open and honest about it. And a lot of leaders, we talk about this. It's like, okay, so what you do is you've got to do the things in the church, make the building, make the surrounding and the environment a place that is 
consumer friendly, right? So everybody's a consumer. On the other hand, a friend of ours, Kent Carlson, Claire and I, our friend, uh, he and his co-pastor, Mike Lucan, wrote, a book, wrote the book, Renovation of the Church, that came to a place where they were really wrestling with this, this whole consumerism. And this is what they say in their book. In order to help people follow Christ more fully, we realized we would have to work against the very methods we were using to attract people to our church. We slowly began to realize that to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus, consumerism is not a force to be harnessed, but rather an anti-biblical value system that is, needs to be prophetically challenged. So which is it? Do we not pay attention to the base motivations of an average American in trying to uh, get them to be spiritually fed? Or do we just go to the other extreme and say, we're going to lean into that because the struggle becomes at some point, you do need to take up your cross and deny yourself, it's at the core of our discipleship process as Christ followers, right? Maybe there's a third way. Maybe that it's, a, that we, it's important that we're inevitably aware that we are consumers and that we teach one another that, but that we would not be driven by that as Christ followers. That I would, you and I would be aware of how we're motivated and then make sure that I'm reflecting, I'm self-reflective, and I'm making sure that I'm a person that's paying attention and I'm not driven by improper motivations. In other words, it really comes down to this, and this has always been the question, this was the question even in the temple. Are we in pursuit of Christ or are we in pursuit of what Christ brings. That's how you check your motivation. And as a Christ follower, for instance, and part of the way I can check that is, for instance, if I pray and the answer that I'm really in pursuit of and desire doesn't kind of come out the way I want it to come out, am I still leaning into Christ because when all is said and done, I'm just in pursuit of Christ, not perhaps a miracle or a more comfortable life. The thing that makes it hard is we know that there are benefits to living in Christ. We know that. We know that miracles happen, and we know that God does things. The Scripture says, for instance, that promotion comes from the Lord, for instance. Every time you get a promotion, you can trust in the fact that God's done that. That's a benefit of serving Christ and leaning in. But at the core motivation, are we in pursuit of Christ, or are we in pursuit of the things that Christ brings? Am I after the gifts of the Spirit, like Simon, so that I can add it to my repertoire, or I'm after the giver of the gift, and I will trust the way that the gifts are distributed in my life? It's a really, um, really hard scripture in Revelation, and it says, I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Up on your feet, take a deep breath. Maybe there's life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift you once had in your hands, the message you heard with your ears. Grasp it again and turn back to God. If you pull the covers back over your head, and sleep on, 
oblivious to God. I'll return when you least expect it and break into your life like a thief in the night. It's a rough scripture because I know that there are times that I have busy work going on and it's not about zealous work for God's kingdom. There are things that I am just not, I'm not thinking two thoughts about what God wants. Not thinking, I'm just wanting to do what I want to do, go where I want to go, have what I want to have. And that's the truth about me. I mean, there are times that I've got, wait a minute, okay, is that, wait a minute, well, pull up, dial it back, dial it back. Is this what God wants? Because I never want to be, as the Romans were told, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor. There's fervor in this, you know? I mean, remember every good relationship you've ever had began with some good juice, Like you just thought, oh, this is the best thing that ever happened. And if you came to know Christ in the way that Scott and I did, I am telling you, we were on fire. (laughs) I mean, we were so in love with Jesus from minute one. It was like, read the Bible in the morning, read the Bible in the evening, quote the Bible to each other all day long. We were learning to be in love with Jesus. And I love what Billy Graham said in his 99th year. I love this. He said, make sure that you pray every day and have intimate friendship with God. I mean, not just like know God, but have intimate friendship. That's zeal, that's passion, that's something beautiful. You know, somebody said, stay thirsty, my friends, you know. And I wonder, are we, consider, are we really thirsting for God or is it this kind of stuff we're thirsting for? whatever the most interesting man in the world is offering. David said it, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I mean, I, I got to tell you, on Friday, I had been through, really, honestly, a really, really hard week, and we prayed uh, we prayed our brains out this week. I'm just telling you, we we we. we It's been a hard, hard week. And I went on Friday to deal with my root issues at the hairdresser. (laughs) And, uh, and, And Bonnie sat me down in her chair, and she just started to talk about the Holy Spirit. And she started to say what God had given her vision for. And what God had given vision to Jill that she had just been with the day before, and how Jill had this vision at the beginning of the church about broken people issues, coming in <laughs> and being taken care of. And Bonnie started to talk. And I'm telling you, friends, I was invigorated by Holy Ghost conversation. I remembered, I remembered that God is faithful. I remembered that God is on my side. I remembered that if God be for me, who can be against me? I remembered that God says, don't worry, I got a thousand angels over here if you need that. And and don't chop any ears off, Claire. (laughs) Just stay zealous for me. I'll take care of the rest of it. You stay zealous for me. I came out from Bonnie's chair and I got in the car and Scott said, how you doing? I said, I am so much better. <laughs> you know, because there are times when you're praying the problem and then you get with somebody who's praying the answer, right? And, and listen, we had to pray the problem too. I mean, if you read that, if you read that Psalm, it says, my tears have been my food day and night. 
Don't lie if you've been crying, because God knows. And anybody who knows you knows your eyes are swollen too. Say that, but then say, I will put my hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. I love the fact that zealousness has to do with heart. It has to do with this fervor. It has to do with panting. It has to do with longing for God. You know, I, I, um, as we're closing up here today, I went in the back, and my, long, my longtime friend Annabelle comes up to me and hugs me, and she says, I miss you. And I said, oh, those are wonderful words. Because if you miss me, that means you love me. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't miss people you don't love. I mean, it feels good to miss someone. Feel your missing of God this morning. Feel how, when the last time you got to touch into your passion for God, your zeal for God, your longing for God, your thirst for God. Remember days when you went into the chair of your friend, wherever it was, or how many times Scott and I have woken up in the morning and we open up with a song and we remember where our faith, our faith, our hope, our world is being held by God. That is the kind of zeal that the world needs, my friend. Not the kind of zeal that chops off ears, calls down fire, says sword words, right? And is motivated by our own need to get what we want when we want it. But we need a zeal in the church that looks like Jesus. That actually looks like turning tables over because the poor are being used that actually has this waking up of I care about what God cares about. I'm walking in the way that Jesus walked. I want to go where Jesus goes. I want to live the way Jesus lives. I want to have an intimate friendship with God. Whether it's standing your firm ground, whether it's climbing a mountain, whether it's kicking up your heels, or whether it's coming to someone and saying, forgive me, I've been a jerk forgive me. I want to remember what matters. I want to remember love. I want to remember that everything begins and ends with love. Even if I think somebody's doing wrong, I can't, I am not allowed to flip a table over unless it's bookended with love. Because it looks so much different. It smells so much different. Its results are so much different. And what the world needs now is zealous love, my friends. The world needs zealous love. You need zealous love. Stand up for a minute. We've all been hit with sword words, bad motivations. We've all been hit with loose lips. We've all had those kinds of things happen. But my friends, if we just get a word from God on this day, because God, even the Bible says that God is zealous for you which means God wants your heart. doesn't want to share your heart with consumerism or with hate or anger or fear. God wants our heart. So I'm going to ask you, get alone with God here. Don't look at anybody else. Get alone with God and check out your zealous factor. Check out where you are in your zeal with God. What are you zealous about? Are there things... In God's house, you want to see change. What has God given you the vision to turn over? Are there things you can help establish that are consistent with your prophetic vision? 
And if Jesus showed up today, let him turn it over, friends. Just let him turn it over. Let him flip over anything that's not passionate for God. Just get honest in your own soul and say, God, you know what? I got busy work, but I'm not living in fervor serving the Lord. Just go ahead and get honest because that God would never ask you the question if God didn't give you the ability to find your way through. And so Jesus, help us, please. Help us to remember that we miss you. Help us remember that anything we're longing for that's good is found in you. And that the motivation to love you and be loved by you is at the root of every good gift and real love that lasts and good work that produces fruit and the ending of evil because we're bringing good. And so let that zeal, would you bless our church, Lord, that we would return to our first love, that we would return to our first love. And if there are people here that have never said yes to loving Jesus, you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say zealous love for God. Just say to God today in the silence of your own heart, I'd like to be awakened to that kind of love to know you and be an intimate friend of yours, that I could be like Billy Graham, even if I make it to 99, telling people, be intimate with God. Be honest right now with God. Say, hey, I don't have that kind of relationship with you, God. I want to know what it's like. I want to remember what it's like. I miss you. I miss you. I miss you. And then, God, you have permission to turn over any table that's keeping me from loving you well.
every prayer that's saying something true to you, you hear it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, longs after the living God. Even if tears have been food day and night, God, you alone can satisfy. For you have made me glad. Yes, you have made me glad. And you have made me glad. You have made me glad. And I. next week.